Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mick Mitt Basque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jack Boyle. Jackler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jackler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit, the Jackler. This Iron podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. The catalogue is out for the 2021 English Classic Yearling Sale. In total, 803 yearlings have been catalogued, 620 in the main book, 183 in the highway session. The sale will run from February the 7th to February the 9th at Riverside and will be preceded by the running of the $2 million English Millennium at Randwick on the Saturday. 108 stallions will be represented at the classic sale, including 22 first season sires. 87% of the yearlings are Bob's eligible, while there are yearlings catalogued eligible for Vobus, QTIS, West Speed, and also the South Australian Breeders and Owners Incentive Scheme. Since 2018, English auctions have produced 53 Group 1 winners. In the last four years, the Classic Sale has produced the winners of a Melbourne Cup, a Golden Slipper, an Everest, a Blue Diamond, a Randwick Guineas, and a Victoria Derby. Grab your copy of a catalogue bursting with quality. The English Classic Sale 2021. First up, and contrary to popular opinion, I've got to tell you that my guest's surname should be pronounced Maliki, not Milecki as he's best known. Danny Maliki is one of Australia's best race callers, equally at home covering a thoroughbred, harness or greyhound race, but best known as the voice of Victorian harness racing. The feature of Danny's work is unquestionably his unwavering enthusiasm. He sounds no different calling a maiden at a chuka as he would broadcasting an Inter-Dominion grand final at Melton. He's a genuine lover of the horse and of the sport, and it shows in every call. Several Aussie race callers have started young. None have started younger than Dan Maliki, at age eight in fact, an astonishing performance that propelled him into the Guinness Book of Records. It's been a great career and an exciting journey embracing 13 Melbourne Cups for the 10 Network and every major harness race in Victoria since 1996. It's time we got the man himself to tell the story and Danny Maliki is on the podcast with us today. Danny, great to have you on board. Oh, what a wonderful introduction. Thank you. I'm, I feel privileged to be a part of it, uh, Tappy. I've, I've heard so many of the podcasts and uh, they are great listening nowadays. Um, I can't tell you how often um, driving to faraway venues to put on um, a podcast and listen to on the way to the track or the way home. It, it's fantastic. You're doing a great job and uh, oh, I really appreciate an opportunity to have a chat with you. Thanks for the feedback, Dan. Now, your surname has Polish origins but has been completely anglicised over the years to the point that most people call you Maleki, and I guess you've become pretty accustomed to it. Well, I guess so. Yeah, that's right. Um, if uh, we pronounced it the, the Polish way, it would be 
Mieliski. Um, but uh, as a lot of names, European names, had been anglicised, um, uh, Maliki. So I pronounce it as, as if it's all eyes. Um, but yeah. you're right. It's been uh, f- uh, mispronounced far more often than it's been pronounced correctly. Your dad, Richard, was born in Poland at the time of the Nazi occupation and at a very early age was sent with his mother, your grandmother, to a German POW camp. Thankfully, their story had a happy ending when your grandmother got him safely to Australia at three or four years of age. Many years later, he met your mum, Jean, in Melbourne, and the rest is history. That's right. I was the first of three uh, children that they were that they created. Um, so uh, my life's always been in, in, in Melbourne, been a Melbourne boy um, all the way uh, through, uh, but ventured to, uh, to the country a lot in New South Wales to, uh, to tap into my craft um, of, of race calling. And, and, you know, sport was very heavy part of, uh, of me growing up. So yeah, very much a Victorian, a, a Melbourne boy um, all the way through. You're the eldest of three. You've got a younger brother, Brad, who fancies a punt and a younger sister, Lisa, who enjoys an occasional day at the races. That's right. Yeah, it's hard, I guess, for either of those two if they didn't have some sort of connection, John. Uh, But Brad's very good. Um, He's my go-to man, uh, particularly in Perth. He's as good a form expert there there, as anybody that I know. Mm. Um, So he loves uh, loves the horse racing and and Lisa likewise. Um, She'll tap into my brain when necessary and and her partner as well. Um, So they do, they enjoy their racing, but being brought up with it, uh, I guess with my involvement, it was hard for them not not to know um, mm. a, a bit about horse racing, and particularly sport. We were always uh, involved in sport, athletics and football in particular, tennis also, mm. uh, soccer. Um, so the, the, the combination of the racing and, and the sport uh, for all three of us were, were key parts of our lives. Your dad loved a day at the races and you were going to the track with him from a very early age. And you were immediately fascinated with the sound of the race call. It caught your ear, didn't it, right from the outset? It, it must have. Uh, look, I think I was even too young to either understand it or even appreciate it, John. And, you know, this is where you would come into it as well, as listening to uh, the, the race caller on the uh, the PA uh, back in the, the early to, to mid-70s, uh, no. just a little boy. And, and then I started uh, mimicking, uh, I guess, the race callers, um, as if you would if you were singing a song, uh, listening to it on the radio. And you can imagine in the old bedding rings and they'd have the interstate races coming out. That's where you came into it and um, mm. and and obviously the, the race is live on track. So probably going there, look, I, I couldn't even tell you how often I was going there. My earliest memories are mm. being at the track um, and without remembering any specifics about horses winning, I know that I was there those days uh, and it became a little bit more... Uh, uh, often and eventually mm. I, that led me to uh, to start practicing race calling. But mm. um, yeah, I, I think that had to have something to do with it. I mean, it's difficult to put your finger on it mm. and to know for sure that's what um, ignited you. But mm. it, it, I, I was there in those early days and, and on the Saturdays. And um, while there's still 
vague in a sense. Mm-hmm. There's a, a a little bit of uh, of it being vivid in my mind, yeah. having been going to the races when I was very um, a very small child. Mm. Well, you were about eight years of age when you started doing phantom race calls around the house and for your friends at school. And this is a lovely story. Your mum was a hairdresser. And one day in the salon, she was telling a customer about your unusual talent. And Mm. that customer happened to be the producer of a popular radio morning show on 3UZ hosted by the legendary Bert Newton. And what followed was a fairy tale. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, even I didn't realise, being so young, uh, what I was getting into. Um, it, it was a gimmick. Whenever a child is that young, uh, it, it's gimmicky because um, it's it's unusual. You can imagine for a boy, uh, I had uh, more of a girl's voice, as most boys would at that, that period if they were a singer or uh, or in in that field, and um, I got asked to do a Melbourne Cup Phantom Call the day before uh, yeah. the nineteen seventy seven Melbourne Cup. So you you taped it at home? Yeah, I put it on uh, tape. That was the big thing in those days. Um, is mm-hmm. that you would record things with the old tape recorder? I've even got one sitting here in front of me that. Uh, it looks like an antique, but uh, the value of those when when I was growing up is is incredible. You wouldn't go to the races without them. Or well, once I started growing up and practicing calling, but yep, put it on tape, mm-hmm. uh, and they played it uh, the day before uh, the nineteen seventy seven uh, Melbourne Cup. Yeah. And uh, my call in my call, I had reckless, narrowly defeating Golden Black, yeah. and. Um, and the next day it played out and it was just the opposite. It was uh, the same Quinella, but it was the golden yeah. black just beating reckless. Well, such was the reaction generated by that appearance that your parents were asked to bring you, little Danny, to a non-tab meeting at Tarang with a view to your calling a few races on the public address system. Now, you tell me you had to stand on a fruit box to reach the yes. binoculars. How were the nerves? Yeah, look, there hasn't been too many times in my life I could honestly say I was nervous, John. I'm, I think anyone you would talk to that knows me, um, they're mm. two words that don't go together. But that day, <laughs> uh, that's all I was. I was a bundle of nerves. Um, mm. It was a big, big thing. Um, so there are non-TRB meetings, but they were, they were plentiful back in those days um, all across Australia. And mm. uh this was a big meeting, was well attended. It was the Cobden Cup meeting, and mm. they promoted me as being the youngest race caller in the world. So I'm making my, I guess, professional debut as an eight-year-old, and mm. there were television cameras and journalists from from everywhere. Uh, like it made the news bulletin on all the main um, news services in Melbourne and across the country that night and all yeah. the newspapers the next day. It, it was a pretty big thing. In a way, I was still young enough to not get so caught up in that, but I was just really nervous about my first few race calls. I think the great part of the way it was structured that day, my first call was actually a hurdle. Mm -hmm. And as a race caller, even as a young one, I think I would prefer to call a two-mile hurdle because it gives you plenty of time to 
uh, get into the race, uh, do your best to relax, even if you mm. are nervous, rather than calling a thousand meter sprint with fourteen or sixteen in it. Mm. So I think that helped a little bit, but uh, I was a bundle of nerves that day. I don't think I've ever been so nervous in my life. In fact, I'm sure I haven't. Mm. Well, Tarang was only the start. What age were you when the Berrigan Club in New South Wales sought your services? Their regular caller had been hurt in a car accident and they needed someone in a hurry. Well, that was the next month. Uh, Terang was the, the February and um, Berrigan was March, so it was about mm. a month later. And I was, I'd got flown up there by uh, Howard Marson, who was the president of the Berrigan uh, Racing Club. Howard would later go on to be the breeder of better loosen up mm. and um he'd organized for me to do a race or two as mm. a special guest uh, not a lot different to what happened at uh, at terang mm. uh i stayed at howard's place that night my dad flew up with me on a light plane now that was an experience that was the first light mm. plane i'd ever been into and mm. i can't say i really enjoyed it john no uh, i can't say i still enjoy it um so the next morning, uh, we were virtually at the track and word had come through that the, the race caller that was to be calling the, the majority of the races had been injured in a car accident. Mm. And I've got an opportunity to call the whole program. So all of a sudden, I've gone from learning back to front the colours of the two races that I was going to call to have mm. to embrace calling the other races. But it just it, it's a bit like a racehorse and you can appreciate mm. how many of them can improve significantly from their mm. debut performance to their second start and uh, it, it's what happened i was able to mm. uh handle it uh really well after my initial gig at uh, terang mm. uh, and, and it was a wonderful day i just remember it being really hot you know 40 degree mark and um uh, it's a big track bearing and it's a really testing track and uh, on a dry day like that it gets a bit dusty but it, it was it was excellent and um, uh, the club and the trainers and the bookies and uh, they were so supportive it, it was a wonderful wonderful experience and and I remember it just as fondly as I do Terang mm. uh, without without as many nerves yeah is that the day you saw a budding superstar win a two-year-old maiden Oh, that was a few years later. Oh, was um, it? Yep. That was uh, – I was eight when I did that meeting. And mm. what had happened about four or five years later, because uh, I'd gone through a circuit of being a, a bit of a gimmick and calling one race as a guest race caller at lots of racetracks across Victoria and, and southern New South Wales. And Berrigan, uh, a few years later, got in touch with me to ask if I'd be interested – because by then I'd written to some of the clubs to say, mm. oh, look, I'm, I'm interested in calling races. Is there a job going? You know, Because there were so many non-TAB meetings, John. There was a circuit – they're all TAB meetings now. And mm. uh, and the club replied to me, remembering that connection I'd had a, a number of years earlier. Uh, and there was a vacancy that had come up for a race caller – to do their meetings, they probably had about 10 meetings a year. Mm. Uh, so I started calling again at Berrigan. It, it virtually became my first uh, full-time track, if you like. I mean, I was still going to school, but driving up and back in the one day with mum or dad or mm. uh, a relation. And um, the first TAB meeting I ever called. Uh, mm. So it was only a New South Wales TAB meeting. Mm. So I was on uh, New South Wales radio as well as the local radio. And that's a big thing. That's a big breakthrough thing. It's probably taken for granted now because there are very few non-TAB meetings. Mm. But back then, it was big. I was 14 years old. Uh, I'd had a bit of experience calling. I think I called okay at that stage. And the first TAB meeting 
the very first race I called on that meeting was a two-year-old, uh, all having their first start as it was in October of that year. It might have even been the first two-year-old race in uh, in uh, New South Wales. It was it was before what is considered Jim Crack and Breeders' Day. Yeah, yeah. And I called a horse called Campaign King on his debut. Mm. He won. And he broke Biscay's 800-metre track record in winning. So mm. that was my first race, first TAB meeting that I called. So that's mm. pretty hard to forget that one. Yep, and he turned out to be a fairly handy horse. 23 wins, seven placings, and $1.8 in prize money. Well, that Berrigan adventure inspired you to hone your craft by practising constantly. You worked on all three codes and with the absence of spare broadcasting boxes, you'd get yourself into all sorts of spots at race yeah. courses just to practice onto a tape recorder. Yeah, that's right. By by then, I'd called a few meetings, and uh, you know the, the the simplistics of calling races, um, calling the horses by the correct name, in the right order. Now, mm. it sounds pretty simple, and everyone will go, "Well, yeah, obviously." Mm. But really, John, and, and you'll know this better than anyone, if you can't get that part right, that job's not for you. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, obviously yeah. I worked on that. And until you get that part right, you know your colours. You, you start to try to read the races. Uh, then you can uh, bring something else into the repertoire. Um, and I was calling in different positions. I'd be at the 400-metre mark at both Caulfield and the old Guinea stand, practising into a tape recorder, uh, sand down in the in the race pits uh, of the car track, uh, Mooney Valley in the old Stewart's Tower uh, for the harness about a, a 50 metres past the post. And be, because of the what we would consider the awkwardness of it, you, you often think that, you know, you'd be right on the post as close to the line as possible uh, to make it easy to call. But I, I was practising calling in all these positions, and I, I'm sure it was later on that I really got to appreciate what it was able to do to me. And, and I think mm. it helped me understand the reading of the race. And when I say the reading of the race, it, it, it's almost like second nature. Mm. Your eyes are in the right place they can you know so many things can happen in a race tappy and you calling your big fields you know you might have your eyes on the leaders but you've got to have some sort of a, a lateral vision for something out wider or back in the field mm. and, and sometimes by reading the race you get a bit of a feel or they're getting a bit tight here or the leaders have gone too hard and I think because I was in those positions mm. I was able to understand the athlete the horse and see their, what their capabilities were. And I, I found that helped me. By the time I got to a normal race calling position in a, in a box right across from the finishing line, it felt far more comfortable, obviously. Mm. Um, but I, I, I got the feel of what, it would, what it's like when they're at the 400-metre mark and identifying the horses that can win the race or they can't win. And, and it makes a difference. Um, when you uh, are able to identify a horse that can't win, you effectively – don't have to call it. You work on the horses that can be in the finish. And, you know, it just doesn't happen overnight. But I was mm. relentlessly going to the races, the trots and the dogs. Uh, when I was young, if I didn't go there with my parents, I'd be going there by train. Um, and 
I it was very much a part of my week. Uh, I love the input, the practice, the preparation, uh, which probably helped because it's sometimes it's hard for people to to do the study and to do the preparation. But I had no problem with that. I I, um, I was eager all the way through. You were just seventeen when a miracle happened. You mm. landed a full time job with the Ten Network in Melbourne as understudy to one of the greats of sports broadcasting. How did this priceless opportunity come along? Well, I I was actually uh, uh, practising my uh, craft at uh, Mooney Valley and there was a spare broadcast box that day and I had my equipment set up. My equipment was merely a a tape recorder and uh, and my binoculars and, and stand and the like and uh, I would tape my calls, and they were all full at that time. There was a number of boxes there, and I know you've called up there and uh, mm. in the boxes. It was at Mooney Valley, John, and yeah. uh, there was only one box that was spare that day, and uh, and so I took it so I could practice in and asked if I could, and, and uh, I, I, I did that. And in between races, this uh, young man just uh, strolled on into the box. I wasn't in the box, but he strolled on into the box. He pressed play and listened to the recording of my previous race. Mm. And when I came back uh, from my sojourn downstairs, I might have been having a bet. I was, you know, I was mm. 17. So, um, And, uh, of course, the young man was Bruce McAvaney, who had uh, said he'd listened to my tape. Uh, he liked what he heard and wondered if I'd be interested in filling in for him to call a meeting at Caulfield. Uh, while he went to the World Athletics Championships. So I think you know what answer I gave him. <laughs> it took you probably half an hour to make up your mind. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was probably a bit stunned uh, yeah. at that time because I was uh, I was still oh, radio school. I was going to radio school at that time and uh, as well. Mm. I'd, I'd gone to radio school for a while and I think they got a bit sick of me because they got jobs for me and I knocked them back and yeah. I had a uh, I had a bad record on on uh, getting uh, jobs offered to me and I'm, and knocking them back John I think mm. there'd be a few CEOs in various places over the years that wouldn't uh, uh, fondly recollect um, me coming through with uh, with accepting offers uh, but mm. that was just me but this is one offer I accepted and it, it was uh, part time or was casual so one meeting led to another meeting that led to another meeting on channel 10 which was the eyewitness news they'd often have that have an hour bulletin um mm. so in the course of a couple of months i i called a number of race meetings for them uh just as a casual just calling the races mm. and then that led to them calling me in to do a screen test and mm. i just thought that i'm doing a screen test because they just want to check out if i can pronounce names of other sports people and the like. So uh, mm. they gave me a script to read to camera, uh, giving results out of uh, tennis championships. And, of course, mm. um, you know, any Russian name and uh, any uh, Czech name, uh, they just rolled off the tongue for a race caller. So they thought, how good this? And about a week later, they rang me up and said, you've got the job. Mm. And I said, what job? And f- found out that there was three other applicants that went for this same job, and I just thought I was the only one, and I was going to go on the screen yeah. test. So it sort of highlights a bit of my naivety at that time. Mm. Well, moving on a few years, and Bruce McAvaney's amazing versatility saw him expanding his involvement with other events on the network, and suddenly Danny Malicki found himself as chief race caller, and you celebrated your newfound independence 
by calling the 1989 Melbourne Cup won by Torrific, the first of your 13 cup calls and the first of Lee Friedman's five cup wins. Yeah, memorable uh, day for me in the lead-up. Um, I'd been on the Channel 10 Melbourne Cup telecast the previous two years, so I, in 87 I called one race each day. And in 1988, I called virtually every race bar the big race. Mm. Uh, and Bruce would still call the Derby, the Cup, the Oaks and the Stakes. Uh, and then in 89, about halfway through the year, the uh, the network made the decision that they wanted me to call. Uh, and naturally, Bruce was so gifted that he could do anything and the value mm. of him uh, as a host and as me as race calling. So I got that opportunity and part of that was going to track work virtually every day and I loved it John getting up at three o'clock four o'clock it wasn't a problem for me getting mm. up at six or seven is <laughs> but mm. three or four wasn't going down the stables I got to know the horses intimately just about you know without jockey silks on them the, particularly the Flemington trained horses and um and the Flemington trainers I got to know so well and had tremendous respect for and um it was it was wonderful I was working hard but living the dream and um yeah, took the terrific uh, Melbourne Cup. Uh, while I was I was young, I was 20 years old at that stage, and it sounds like, wow, I got an opportunity really young. Mm-hmm. By then, I'd been calling races for 12 years, so uh, probably unlike today where a race caller can get an opportunity a bit sooner because of the, uh, uh, the quantity of meetings that are available, um, I'd effectively been calling uh, for quite a while. And, um, and, and while I was still young getting that opportunity, I, I felt – uh, well-versed. I was confident then in my ability that I, I was fine to do that job. Well, your final cup call came in 2001 when Ethereal won the race for Sheila Laxon and Scott Seymour. Now, Channel 7 won the contract from Channel 10 and they took over the following year. Uh, you were already heavily involved in harness racing as chief caller for HRV and you didn't chase an opportunity to continue calling the thoroughbreds for the Seven Network. Looking back now, any regrets about that? I think so, John. I think I'd had some people get in touch with me to say, oh, Channel Seven are going to use you to, to, to call the Melbourne Cup. So I think as a result of that, I got, a, got, I got a bit complacent and the expectation was that they would perhaps come to me, but... I should have been motivated a little bit more, I think, on reflection to to get in touch with him. I did have a chat with Bruce McAvaney at one stage and um, I mm. sent in a tape and I sort of didn't follow it up. And, uh, yeah, there might be a little regret there that, that I didn't do more about that. I mean, I'd had a full-time job at the time anyway and mm. uh, that wasn't so much of a problem. But I, 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 there was news reports that I was going to do it. Um, and maybe I believe some of those news reports as opposed to really following it up. I mean, I was still uh, only ever worked uh, with uh, Channel 10 as far as the TV organisation to that stage. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I should have made a, another phone call um, on reflection of it now. You made uh, the big decision in 1996, of course, when HRV, the controlling body of harness racing in the state, invited you to become the voice of the sport in Victoria. And at the time of that offer, you were doing a lot of work on Channel 31. And for a while there, you were calling all three codes. 
I was, and I loved it, John. It's probably the most enjoyable period of my working life is when I was able to incorporate the three the three codes with the gallops. I had the Melbourne Cup Carnival for Channel 10, but I would be filling in for, for John Russell on, on Sky Channel as well. So I'd frequently be doing race meetings for Sky, uh, Thoroughbreds. Uh, I'd do the on-course at uh, Mooney Valley Trots. And I'd also be calling the Greyhounds for Sky Channel on the Monday and Thursday nights at Olympic Park and uh, and Sandown Park. So I really was thoroughly enjoying it. And that was uh, – I was actually freelance for a couple of years at one point there while I was doing all three of them. Uh, so I was enjoying uh, that part of it. I, I, I was even freelancing, doing some journalistic work at Channel 10 because I'd worked there for a number of years full-time. Mm. And and then after I sort of parted ways with the news um, newsroom, uh, they still employed me casually uh, for the next couple of years. So mm. I even got paid more for doing it casually. I thought, how good's this? And uh, <laughs> to, to, to do, to do the, the, the three codes as well, it, it, look, it was a fantastic period in, in my life. And Channel 31 – um, the show that they'd had for the trots there was a bit similar to a, a penthouse club type show that I grew up with in the in the 1970s that uh, Bill Collins was involved with with Mary Hardy and Mike Williamson and the like. Um, so it's fondly remembered now and, and, and got a good foothold into the harness racing and uh, yeah, they were wonderful days, John. We'll just pause for a moment on the podcast to clear a commitment, Danny. We'll be back with you after this. The New South Wales Central Coast attracts thousands of holiday makers over the Christmas New Year period. A reminder to those who fancy a race meeting that the Gosford Race Club will host one of the best provincial meetings of the year on Tuesday, December the 29th, featuring the $160,000 Group 3 Bell of the Turf over 1,600 metres for fillies and mares. Co-feature will be the $150,000 listed Gosford Guineas of 1,200 metres for the three-year-olds. If you can't make it to this meeting, you get a second bite of the cherry. Two days later, New Year's Eve, the Gosford Race Club will race again. You get a wonderful view of the action from all vantage points at Gosford and facilities are second to none. It's a friendly little race place at Gosford, the perfect venue for a post-Christmas day out for the Central Coast Revelers. 29th and 31st of December at Gosford. My special guest is Danny Maliki. Well, you can't be at every HRV track and you've had some wonderful support from some great callers over the years. Craig Rail uh, was uh, the man right behind you for a number of years before deciding to move to New Zealand. Uh, you've got uh, Lachlan McIntosh, who does a terrific job, and a young bloke called Luke Humphreys, who has burst onto the scene in the last couple of years. That's right. Yeah, there's plenty of race meetings in Victoria, so I can't do all of them, John, thankfully. I, I thought I would have run my race a fair while ago if I had to. But, um, yeah, Lachlan's terrific. He was a, a trainer and a driver uh, and uh, turned to full-time race calling when he was offered the job. He actually took the job from his brother. Rick started off in that position. They were both based in bending, and, of course, Rick's doing a terrific job with the gallops. Lachlan's maintained the calling of the trots. Uh, he's a terrific guy, understands the, the harness world uh, so well with his experience as a trainer and a driver. 
Uh, Craig Rowell, they're so enthusiastic. I don't know if I've ever come across someone more passionate about the trots than Craig Rowell, and mm. he's now based in New Zealand and, and picking up the odd meeting here and there. And and young Luke uh, has come onto the scene only a couple of years ago, and uh, he's still a young man, um, and uh, he's he's living the dream as, as, at the moment as well. So uh, Lachlan and Luke are the two, uh, along with myself, the three base callers for, uh, for Harness Racing Victoria at the moment. When we look at the best harness horse drivers of your era, I know you've got Gavin Lang in a league of his own and the trotting industry was rocked by Gavin's passing earlier this year. The tributes continue to flow to this day. It's hard to explain the artistry of Gavin Lang in the sulky. It is. An artistry is, is probably a word that, you wouldn't often use with a, a horse person, but he, he was. I mean, I've used the term magician a number of times. I've referred to him to David Copperfield, and um, and it's been embraced as well. Um, I don't know of another person that had so many different nicknames mm-hmm. where people were just aghast at his ability, freakish drives in impossible situations that he was still able to win. And a fluke might be once or twice, but he did this consistently. Um, he, he was he was a magician with his hands and what he could do, and um, he, he's very sadly missed. I call him winning a lot of races, uh, John. I mean, he started before I really got going, and mm-hmm. he was at the peak of his powers when I was calling, and it, it was one of the most enjoyable things to to reflect on uh, the ability and, as you said, the artistry of a human being in, in, in any sport, but uh, he was one of a kind. He drove 6,300 winners. He was never certain of his Group 1 tally, but he thought it was somewhere around uh, the 100 mark. His greatest regret was the fact that he'd never driven the winner of an Inter-Dominion pacing grand final. In fact, deep down, it got up his nose. Yeah, he, he had a few cracks at that over the years. I suppose at one stage you, you take for granted, well, I'll get my opportunity, I'll get my opportunity. Um, he had a terrific record in the Inter-Dominion Trotting Championship. Mm. Uh, he, he, he got a good chance uh, at the Gold Coast onto Auckland Reactor, who was yeah. the boom horse at the time, and he over-raced and he was hitting the back of his... Uh, uh, shaft uh, the sulky there, so he, he mm. fired right up, and that that didn't help. And he obviously got close on a couple of times, but really, that was about the only race he wasn't able to get. Um, when he when he passed away, John, I, I did a tribute on uh, on RSN radio, and I spent a number of hours, uh, as I often do, uh, researching stuff. I I I, uh, I even when I get information given to me, I. If I'm the one that has to broadcast it, it's got to be correct. And and with due respect to everyone else, I sort of don't trust the information. I have to go back and I have to check it, <laughs> um, as you would understand, because if a blue is made... It's there uh, forever. Can, uh, that's right. And I can accept it if I made the blue and I didn't mm. do the uh, correct preparation. But when it's someone else's information and you make a blue, it's hard mm. to swallow, isn't it, John? So, no, I understand, yeah. Uh, I, I went back over the the country cups in Victoria over the years, and there was two country cups of all the tracks in Victoria that uh, Gavin Lang hadn't won. One was a non-tab track, and mm. the other one was a Chuka Chuka Cup. He had won 
every cup in the state of Victoria bar the Echuca Cup and, mm. and one of the non-tabs. Goodness. Yeah, you have put some work in. It's incredible when you think about it. I mean, there's a lifetime of driving in that. But we've got a lot of tracks in Victoria, John. Some of mm. them uh, don't even exist anymore. Um, and he still won those races. And uh, even the uh, uh, Gavin's family uh, weren't aware of that fact. Uh, so, you know, sometimes it's worth putting in the hours to come up with some information because uh, it's hard to imagine there'd be anybody else that could win as many um, mm. country cups as, as what uh, Gavin was able to do. So I think you mentioned the Inner Dominion. I think probably you'd be thinking maybe the Echuca Cup was the other one as well. Mm. There are some <clears throat> very amusing Danny Maliki stories. What about the time you attended the two-day New Zealand Cup Carnival at Addington? And on the second day, the champion trotter Lyle Creek was shooting for a massive number of consecutive wins in the trotters free-for-all. Now, you were invited to call the race in a guest capacity, and somehow, Danny, you got Lyle Creek beaten. <laughs> uh, well, look, New Zealand's one place I honestly felt loved, John. I felt <laughs> like uh, it was my second home and people embraced me and, and I'd even go close to saying they loved me. But that day, <laughs> that day, uh, I was, uh, I, I think they were prepared to uh, banish me forever. Mm. Um, it was the same year that Courage Under Fire had been beaten uh, during that memorable Inter-Dominion series at uh, Mooney Valley. Mm. And... Uh, and Lyle Creek was going for, I think it was 22 straight, some incredible record. And you can imagine he was a $1.04 favourite in a Group 1 race. Um, I'm not the sort of person to tap anyone on the shoulder and say, hey, can I call at, at, at a venue that's not where I work? I'm not mm. that way. But the club wanted me to call a Group 1 race on the Tuesday. So I called the Sires, um, mm. which is a big race for the three-year-olds, and the free-for-all. A couple of those races have changed around now, mm. uh, but this was the New Zealand Trotters, uh, the, the big free-for-all, and Lyle Creek, and they wanted me to call. And uh, so I said, no worries, and um, and uh, sure enough, he got beaten. He galloped in, he broke in the straight, <laughs> and he finished third. Um, Sunny Action ended up winning it. Mm. And um, uh, I after the race, I went down to the, uh, the bar near the uh, parade ring, and and Steve McKee, the uh, co-trainer of Sunline, mm. uh, comes up to me. And I hadn't met Steve, or, or if I had, I, you know, I hadn't had a good chat. I didn't know him well. Mm. Mm. And he comes up to me, Dan Maliki, in front of everybody, yeah. uh, all the major players, Dan Maliki, and he's put out his hand with a $100 uh, Kiwi note in his hand to shake mine. And it was, you know, you can imagine like a little bribe taking place. Yeah. Dan Maliki, uh, you've got. Courage under fire beat. You've got Lyle Creek beat. For goodness sake, don't call Sunline as you say to me. Yeah. <laughs> I jumped ahead of Courage under fire, going back to that Inter Dominion heat when he was beaten in the last few strides by Kaima Kid. Your words in the final stages of that race have become trotting folklore. Yeah. Well, it's it's funny. At the time, it didn't really resonate. Um, I'm not saying I didn't expect that he would just keep on winning, um, but to that stage of his career, 
there were probably three certainties in life, weren't there, John? There was mm -hmm. death, there was taxes, and courage under fire would just keep winning. Yeah. So to have that broken, um, as a race caller, things can come into your head pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. They're not always the best things that come into your head, but you've got to adapt fast. Yeah. And um, naturally, in a horse race, you get a sense of what's about to occur. And, you know, halfway up the straight, it, the post didn't look like it was going to come up in time, and mm. I rolled out those words, the world must be ending. But, I, it, look, yeah. it didn't mean anything to me. It didn't resonate with me. But yeah. um, from the next day on, people kept talking about it, and they still refer to it. So I'm humbled by that. I hope mm. it was appropriate. But I didn't feel, I didn't walk out of the box with my chest um, puffed out thinking oh, I've called a great race. It was far mm. from that. So I appreciate the way it's been taken. But... It was, uh, to, to that time, a wonderful, wonderful carnival. That's the most enjoyable race carnival I've ever uh, been a part of, John, was that 2000 Into Dominion carnival. Uh, there were so many highlights, so many good horses, um, and that was, I guess you say it was a highlight, even though it, it's remembered for a champion horse being beaten for the first time. Mm -hmm. And Shaker Maker won the grand final with the most electrifying sprint from the home turn. You've dabbled in horse ownership and you were actually half owner of a brilliant trotter called Waihimo Hanger a few years ago. He raced and beat the best and he was destined for a terrific career when he succumbed to injury and had to be retired. Now, he won a feature trot at Addington one year on Cup Day and you were a spectator and I'm quite sure your part owner and friends we're very pleased you didn't call the race. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. It's funny because I would get a bit nervous. He, he was pretty special horse uh, to myself and my wife Tanya and, and Terry Henderson uh, got into the ownership too. I, I had asked Mark Purden sometime previous, I want to get a uh, Buster Hanover, I said to him. And about mm. 18 months later, he called me. I'd had a different phone by then, so he didn't have my number. So he went through Terry Henderson to get my number. And um, Terry Henderson, I called him Mr. Lucky. By then, he'd had so much success. He'd won a Melbourne Cup with Doremus. He had uh, Choken and uh, Holmes DG, multiple Miracle Mile winners, mm. Grand Circuit champions, and New Zealand Harness Horse of the Years. Um, so he rang me and said, oh, Mark Purden said he's got this horse for you. If you don't mind, uh, can I come in it with you? Um, now, when Mr. Lucky says that, <laughs> I'm not going to say no. 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 So it was great that Terry got involved and uh, the horse gave us some wonderful thrills. He charged through the classes. Uh, as a as a four-year-old in race two, he was four. He was very quickly at the group one level. Uh, he won a New Zealand trotting championship and beat the best. Um, and that particular day, he won the feature trot on, on Cup Day, and it was a massive thrill. And, and Terry was there as well. And uh, and so too was Steve McKee. And Steve joined us to celebrate <laughs> in the owner's room after we had won it. So it was a wonderful experience. There's a massive crowd that day. That's the biggest crowd, yeah. trotting crowd, that I have been involved with since mm. I was a little kid and I would have been watching uh, Mark Avena and Pro Chevalier winning their interdominions. I mean, they were massive crowds there, but mm. regularly uh, New Zealand Cup Day at Addington, you'd get twenty to 25,000 people and uh, they love their harness racing. So to win a race overseas with uh, with your horse is pretty mm. special. And um, yeah, it's a bit of a shame he did a suspensory, John, that and suspensory and for a trotter particularly that uh, that yeah, virtually uh, curtailed fatal. his career but um, mm -hmm. he, he uh, I think if he 
Mark was adamant that the horse was as good as Buster Hanover and Pride of Petite. I'm mm. not sure if that's correct, but I guess the horse never got the opportunity to, to uh, prove it uh, with the longevity. Uh, but he was tough. He was as tough a horse as um, as a trotter than I, I can recall. And, uh, yeah, pity it, he wasn't around for long enough. Well, Terry Henderson is best known these days as the founder and CEO of OTI Bloodstock, whose colours are seen frequently on Australian racetracks, quite often by imported horses, like Attorney, who won the Pakenham Cup, the $300,000 Pakenham Cup, as recently as last Saturday. Courage under fire, before we leave him, what an amazing little horse. And we are talking 14 two hands. He won 41 of his 56 starts, six derbies, amazingly. Mm. He won six Inter-Dominion heats, could never win a final, but he won a lot of other Group 1 races and retired with prize money of almost $1.5 million. That's a lot of money in harness racing. It is a lot of money. I think he was with Brian Hancock then in an Inter-Dominion, and he's about the only champion horse he had that didn't win an Inter-Dominion. Um, he, he was my favourite horse to call, Um no, I'm not saying he was the best horse I've seen, John, but he was my favourite horse to call. And when you reflect on um, great race horses, and, and that era too, there was super bunch of horses going around, Yule Star and Shaker Maker, Christian Cullen, Ericles, mm. yeah. um, and they were frequently running against each other. And he started favourite in that into the minion of 2000. And uh, look, my probably the somewhere between my best call and most remembered for mm. myself personally yeah. was when he won the Australian Derby and completed the, the sixth Derby win mm. at uh, Mooney Valley. Um, that was – it was a special memory for me because mm. uh, he was so good and I was pretty happy with what I had done to complement his performance. Uh, but, yeah, make no mistake, he was a great horse. And, and I would say – he was the, the pale face Adios as far as popularity was concerned uh, in his era. Uh, mm. There probably, I, I don't know if there have been two other, other horses, uh, any other horses that I could say were as popular mm. as those. Idols, two absolute horses. idols, yeah. Yeah. Well, Courage Under Fire went on to sire a number of nice horses, including Smolder, who won an Inter Dominion, something his old man couldn't do. Mm. Courage died at the Yirribi Stud at Wagga in 2017 and his passing was widely reported. Danny, you're doing a lot of radio currently and I know you're enjoying every minute of it. You have a heavy involvement with RSN in Melbourne. You're involved in several programs and the one that you really enjoy is called Cracking the Codes. On Saturdays between 10 and midday, I think your sidekicks are Simone Fisher and Matt Stewart. They, yeah, they are. Look, we, we, we have a ball with the show. We put a bit of time and effort in. Um, it's not a tipping show or, or a punting show per se, so I think it really complements a racing radio station. There's a bit of nostalgia, welfare, uh, feel-good stories, and you get an opportunity to talk things with racing people of three, all three codes that aren't necessarily racing-related, and I think it's, an, it's a really enjoyable part of my job and, and even from our guests point of view they they enjoy letting their hair down and not just being able to talk about you know their chances at 
Ballarat today, for example. So Simone and, and, and Matt are, are fantastic and they're so skillful. Uh, and the three of us have an absolute ball. And yeah, that, that is uh, that is my favourite show, but don't tell anyone at RSN that. There's a few other shows that I'm involved with this as well yeah. that I thoroughly enjoy, John. And, and, you know, again, I sort of wish I'd made more of uh, trying to get back into the radio and doing those sorts of uh, shows. I mean, a few of the shows that I'm involved with, they were my idea. I've tapped them on the shoulder to say, hey, I've got an idea. And they've supported me by um, allowing me to do those shows in, in part with the content, produce them, and, and you know, I love it. And my mm. colleagues are fantastic. It's a really enjoyable time. And, again, I was a bit too slow on the uptake. I, I should have been uh, knocking on doors years ago. Mm. Well, you do a harness review program on Sunday mornings with Rob Orber. On Monday, a program called Gate Speed, again with Rob Orber and my old mate Gareth Hall. And on Thursday, a show called Green Light On. Danny, we're just about out of time, but I want to take your memory back to one other race from the 10 network days that I know you have never forgotten. Uh, do you remember the day Lord Reams won the 1987 uh, Caulfield Cup on a quagmire track? Brent Thompson was the jockey and um, he just scrambled in and he beat one of my all-time favourite horses, Bozam, who was only yep. a three-year-old. Yeah, that was my first big race for Channel 10, a 1987 Caulfield Cup. And Lord Reams come from the outside gate, led all the way and lasted by a pimple. And I nailed the photo. And uh, mm. I was obviously only young. I was 18 years of age. Um, so a bit like that Courage Under Fire call of the Australian Derby, mm. uh, I'd say the equal to that as far as my memory is concerned mm. for what's you know, really important to me was that call of that Caulfield Cup and that memory. I mean, they're big races we're talking about and uh, I was so, you know, proud on reflection to go back now and I could still say that 1987 mm. uh, Caulfield Cup uh, is my favourite race uh, personally yeah. of in my in my calling career. Not, it might necessarily be my best, but it's my favourite yeah. uh, memory. He was a remarkable horse, Lord Reams. He finished up winning three Adelaide Cups, 1987 with Marie Linden on board, 1988 again Brent Thompson and 1989 ridden by Grant Cooksley who they tell me now has a dual licence in New Zealand, a trainer and jockey licence and still has the occasional race ride. He is a marvel, Grant Cooksley. <laughs> He is a marvel, isn't he? And he was known as the Ice Man in his days too, wasn't he? So yeah, he was. you know, I think it was one of the nicknames that that Gavin Lang had as well. But um, yeah, great horse, Lord Reams. Um, he was a fantastic sayer, a great New Zealand horse. That um, he just seemed to uh, get better when he he would visit Australia every year. But yeah, they were great horses, John. Um, every year has got great horses and. Um, yeah, Lord Reams was one of my favourites. He was long odds in that, that cup. I think he was mm. about 33 to 1 when he won the Caulfield Cup. Danny Malicki, been an absolute delight having you on the podcast. Thanks very much for your time on a Sunday morning, and we do appreciate it. 
Uh, look, absolute pleasure it is to, to have a chat with you. And uh, just I'll remind some of our listeners too that when I was growing up, Bill Collins was a voice that I would listen to in Melbourne. But uh, hearing the dulcet tones of John Tapp was very much a part of my upbringing. And, um, you know, you probably don't appreciate um, what influence that you had on, on not just my career, but on so many other aspiring race callers, John. So uh, you do you deserve your part in it too. Thanks, Danny. I appreciate your comments very much. And thanks for uh, giving us the honour of your time on our special racing podcast. My pleasure and keep up the great work. I love the podcast. Thanks, Dan. Dan Maliki from Melbourne.